0: Views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Jean Chatsky. Miss Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see wwwedelmanfinancialenginescom everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engines' Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now,
1: here's Gene Chatsky. Is recession inevitable? You would think so, listening to everyone from CEOs. J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon has proclaimed a coming economic hurricane to my well-read next-door neighbor. Many economists are predicting a recession at some point in the coming year. Those were the opening lines in a column in the Philadelphia Inquirer written by Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandy, or as the Inquirer likes to call him, Philly's Top Economist. He continues, in over 30 years as a professional economist, I've never witnessed such pessimism regarding the economic outlook, but to me... This collective wisdom is overly glum. Recession is far from a done deal. I gotta say, amid all the pessimism dominating the headlines as we headed out of 2022 and into 2023, this was exactly the kind of story I wanted to read. Because in my 30 years as a financial journalist, one of the things that I've learned is that forecasts... Predictions, prognostications, bets, whatever you want to call them, they are often wrong. Jason Zweig, the Wall Street Journal columnist, wrote about this very issue at the turn of the year, and he said, countless hunches and gut feelings flicker through our consciousness over the course of a year, and we naturally remember the ones that turn out to be right, The multitude of other hunches that turn out to be wrong go into our mental garbage can. Looking back at yourself a year ago, what you know now has indelibly altered your perception of what you knew then. And this pattern, which psychologists call hindsight bias, makes us feel that we foresaw the future all along, that what happened was inevitable, that anybody who didn't see it coming is a dope. It's close to irresistible, and it's an illusion. That's something to try. It's, it's hard, but we need to try to keep in mind as we look ahead and think about how we're going to manage our money and our lives in the rest of 2023 and beyond. So earlier in the new year, I sat down with Mark Zandi, Chief Economist for Moody's Analytics, to discuss why and how he thinks we can skirt recession. We'll also take a very deep dive into the housing market and what will have to happen in order for homes to become affordable. This interview was conducted the week before the new inflation numbers were released. Hey, Mark, happy 2023.
2: Hey, Gene, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on and happy new year.
1: Thank you so much. So in your forecast for the year, you said that we may be able to stave off a recession. I was very, very happy to read that. But you said we were likely to have what you're calling a slow session. What is that?
2: Yeah, uh, well, uh, it's a, a term to try to describe what I think is dead ahead. And that's an economy that isn't in recession. A recession is a broad-based a uh, persistent decline in economic activity, so broad-based, lots of industries, persistent—you know, not just for a month or two, but you know, for a happy a year or more. I, I don't think we're going to have that, uh, uh, but we are going to have an, an economy that's kind of s- tough, slow, not going anywhere fast. Uh, so, thus, slow session. So, it's going to be—you know—uncomfortable at times, a little painful, but. We're not going to suffer the pain that we typically do in an economic downturn or recession.
1: You pointed to a number of factors that you think sort of add up to that equation. Um, And top of the list was that inflation is moderating. Um, It it doesn't feel that way when you go to the grocery store and buy eggs. Well, it does if you go to the gas
2: Pump, right? I mean that's, that's true. where the inflation, that's true. Out, right? I mean if you go back to yeah. June, remember June, Gene? Uh <laughs> at our local Wawa and Phil, at least my local Wawa in suburban Philly, I was paying five dollars a gallon for regular unleaded. It's so now I just uh just saw three dollars a gallon, which is you know, uh back to where it was before Russia invaded Ukraine. So that feels pretty good. Uh, but you're right. I mean, inflation is still very high. I mean, the consumer price index that's kind of the inflation measure we all look at It's about seven percent. It needs to be uh closer to two two and a half percent to be consistent with what I think we'd all feel comfortable with and certainly what the Federal Reserve would feel comfortable with. So we've made progress. you know we're uh we've seen some improvement here, but we've got a long way to go. But I think we've gotten some good news on that front uh, that we can talk about
1: How about the jobs? front um, when we look at the fact that the labor market's still pretty strong, um, that we've got uh, some wage gains still in the picture? Where, how does that figure into recession, not recession times?
2: Well, that's the key in my mind. I mean, uh, in defining a recession, determining whether we're in one or not, uh, we need to look at a lot of different economic indicators. But at the top of the list of indicators is, are we creating jobs or not? I mean, is the economy producing uh, jobs? And up to this point in time, the answer is definitively yes, right? I mean, job growth is slowing. And that's by design because we can't create the kind of jobs we were a year ago without inflation becoming a real long-term problem, but uh, but it's still quite strong, a couple hundred thousand per month. Uh, and just to give context, in a typical month, uh, about a 100,000 people come into the uh, net, come into the labor force. So we need to create a 100,000 jobs a month just to keep unemployment stable uh, and low. And right now we're creating more jobs than that. So that would suggest the labor market, which is already, as we know, quite tight, a lot of unfilled positions out there uh, will, will likely get tighter. So we need some, to see some further slowing in job growth to avoid uh, uh, getting into a highly inflationary environment with high interest rates and ultimately a recession. But uh, right now the job market feels pretty good.
1: The wage growth, it has been, I mean, stronger than we've seen in quite some time, right? I mean, the employees have had leverage to ask for, um, ask for pay bumps, to go across the street and and get a job that pays them more money, and I would expect that um, when you talk about the resilience of consumers. Um, that is a big part of the picture. How How is the consumer, who we know represents the lion's share of the U.S. economy, how's the consumer actually doing?
2: Uh, okay. Uh, well enough, I think, to avoid that recession. I mean, in my mind, the consumer is the firewall between an economy that's in recession or not. If the American consumer is out doing their thing, just not spending with abandoned, but just kind of doing what they typically do, the U.S. economy will be fine. And by the way, it'd be a big lift to the entire global economy because we consume everything we produce and a lot of what folks produce everywhere else on the planet. So we're buying stuff. You know, that should help to support the entire global economy. And right now, the U.S. economy, the American consumers is kind of the engine of global economic growth. The, 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 the train is going slowly here. The global economy is struggling, but we would be in recession without the American consumer. And there's a lot of right now uh, supports the consumer. Lots of jobs. Uh, we just talked about low unemployment. Uh, wage growth has been strong, hasn't kept up with inflation you know, over the past year, but that's going to change. Inflation is going to come in. Wage growth will come in as well, but not quite as quickly. So we should see some improvement there. But here's the thing that makes the current environment so unique, and that is that we saved a lot of money during the pandemic, right? Middle, high-income households, because they couldn't spend. You were sheltering in place. You couldn't spend. You saved that money and lower uh, middle-income households because they got a lot of support from the federal government, you know, everything from unemployment insurance to food stamps to rental assistance and a long list of things. And a lot of that was saved, and it's sitting as cash in people's checking accounts. You can actually – we measure that. We know there's no guesswork here. Banks report how much they have in checking and deposit accounts. So it's sitting as cash, and people are drawing down that excess saving, that cash that they – built up during the pandemic to help supplement their purchasing power today. So they got we got nailed by this high inflation. We had to pay 5 bucks for a gallon of regular unleaded. Rents were going up quickly. Food prices, you know, cost a lot to put money put food on the table. But we were fortunate enough that we came into this period with a lot of cash uh, built up during the pandemic to supplement the purchasing power and that's allowed the consumer to to hang tough uh, stay in the game.
1: So I've been watching credit card balances i I watched them heading into 2008 and and got nervous as I saw the balances rising and they're at a high again that we haven't seen since 2008 I mean credit card balances are are up and nobody but me seems worried um why why am i why am I worrying needlessly
2: well you got to put it into context I mean because credit card balances collapsed during the pandemic, right? So if you look at the amount of credit card debt outstanding today, it's up from where it was a year ago, no doubt, and two years ago in the teeth of the pandemic. But it's not much higher than it was prior to the start of the pandemic back in early 2020. Uh, And so, you know, and also you have to consider that credit card balances are rising quickly because people are using that for uh, travel, you know, out going to restaurants and ball games, that's, you know, you use your cards for that. And then of course, inflation, the higher the rate of inflation, the faster credit card balances are going to rise, right? Because those those things are going on your card. Having said that it is a sign of stress. I do think among low income households, they are turning to cards and unsecured personal lines that I think, you know, also was kind of a substitute for credit cards in this day and age. A lot of FinTech companies providing, you know, that, uh, those unsecured personal lines, And I do think that this is, you know, an indication of the first sign that there is some, you know, weakness among uh, particularly low-income households. And, uh, you know, if this continues, and we have this conversation a year from now, and credit card balances rise as much in the coming year as they did in the past one, then that'll be a big deal.
1: You mentioned interest rates going up and, and the rise in interest rates, and specifically the rise in mortgage rates, have kept a lot of people from buying homes right home prices are are far higher than they were a year ago affordability because of mortgage rates as well as these home prices has has kept a lot of people on the sidelines even though they have this cash that we're talking about where where are we headed with housing and are we are we at risk of looking at a repeat of what happened in 2008?
2: Well, house prices are going to come down, uh, but we're, we're not going to experience a, re- a repeat of 2008 when they collapsed. They're going to be down because mortgage rates have risen very sharply. They've more than doubled over the past year. And those high rates are now conflating with the uh, now high, high house prices. They surged during the pandemic, you know, as people wanted uh, homes, uh, remote work, Mortgage rates were at record lows, and so you combine high mortgage rates with high house prices. That means you're, if you're, you're thinking about buying a home, your monthly payment is going to be very high. Just to give you a statistic, if I'm the median, uh, they say the typical American household making the middle, the median income in the middle of the distribution of, of, of all of the incomes, and I buy the median priced home, that's kind of the typical home at the prevailing mortgage rate. I'm going to be spending seven, eight hundred bucks more a month on my mortgage payment today than a year ago. That for most potential home buyers, that's just not, not feasible. Not, that's just possible. not right. possible. So that means to restore so called affordability, to make it more affordable, one of three things, or all three things of these things have to happen one, mortgage rates have to come back down, two, incomes have to rise, And or three, house prices have to decline. In my view, all three of those things are going to happen here over the next two years.
1: Can we talk about the mortgage rates specifically? Because mortgage yeah. rates are a weird beast, right? <laughs> I mean, we saw they—they are—they—they're supposed to move in tandem with with ten-year treasuries, or or at least close to it. But but we saw the Fed rise, raise interest rates successive times in in twenty twenty two. Mortgage rates went all the way up to seven percent plus the Fed continued to raise interest rates and mortgage rates have started to come down. And the Fed is expected to keep raising rates at least a little bit, right? They've got a target in the five, five and a half percent range, which gives them a little room to run. And yet mortgage rates are expected to come down. How, why?
2: Yeah, well, uh, the mortgage rate is equal to the sum of the 10-year treasury yield because mortgages generally People are in their home 10 years, so it's most closely tied to 10-year money. So it's a 10-year yield, not the funds rate, that's short-term money. So, you know, you know, tomorrow, next week, we're talking 10 years. So 10-year treasury yield plus a, what you call a spread, a difference that compensates for the cost of mortgage servicing. Someone's got to service your mortgage, the cost of the origination. Someone's got to originate the mortgage. Uh, someone's going to take prepayment risk because you're getting a 30-year, 15-year mortgage that you can you can refinance at any time and lower your mortgage rate. Well, that's a risk to the investor who said, oh, I just lent you money at six and a half. And now you're going to take me out at five and a half or four and a half. That's a that's a risk. You've got to compensate me for that risk. And so that's where we've seen a very significant widening in that spread, because investors that are buying these mortgages are saying, hey, you know, I, I think there's a great deal of risk here that I get re- refinanced out of this mortgage at some point in the future, and you got to pay me for that, Mr. Borrower or Ms. Borrower. And so that's caused that spread to, to widen it and, and gap out. And right now, it's it's double what it typically is historically, just because of the circumstances that we're in. And that's why mortgage rates are as high as they are. They, they will eventually things will settle down once it's clear the Fed stopped is going to stop raising interest rates and everything. The dust settles the mortgage rates will come back down. Even if the 10-year treasury yield stays where it is, mortgage rates will probably come in around 5.5%. So if I were, you know, thinking about this, uh, you know, about buying a home, this is probably the worst time to buy a home. Uh, Mortgage rates are high. (laughs) House prices are still high. There's no inventory out there. Wait a a year or two, you know, there's going to be more inventory. Prices will be down and mortgage rates will be back down.
1: The the inventory question is an interesting one because if I'm a homeowner and I'm – I am a homeowner and I'm sitting in a home where I've got a 3% mortgage. I'm not trading that in so easily, right? I, I'm like, this is this is the best deal going and I don't expect to see it again anytime soon. In order for house prices to come down, supply's got to go up if, if my economics 101 knowledge is, is correct, right? So, so what's going to make that move? Well, it's
2: going to happen. Right. Because life, right. Things happen. You know, people die. People get old. People get divorced. People lose their jobs. Uh, You know, they want to be closer to the kids, Uh, you know, life. So, you know, you can hold on for a while and say, hey, you know, I don't I love that three and a half percent. Or for you, obviously, Gene, you're, you're a whiz. You got three <laughs> percent. Good for you. Three percent is probably the low low point. Uh, maybe maybe you could have gotten two and three quarters, Gene. I don't know, but you know, maybe I, I, you three. know, I
1: did. I yeah. didn't. So so yeah, okay. somebody out okay. there did.
2: Somebody out there got two and three quarters. But you know, life happens, and so you know, at that point, we'll start to see. And right now, there's a lot of pent up. Life happens. You know, people are not putting it on the market because they hope beyond hope, mortgage rates will come down, things will stabilize. But at some point, they're going to say, hey, I, I just, I, I can't, I got to move. I got to move. And so you may see a, a surge of, you know, properties coming on the market at some point here. And, then, you know, at that point, we'll start to see, you know, prices start to come in more. They've already coming in, right? I mean, nationwide, prices are down 2 3% from the peak back in June. In places like California, you know, like go to the Bay Area, that's kind of the poster child for the price declines. We're down almost 10% already, you know, from the peak, which was back in and- June.
1: And will we see that across the board, you think, that that 10% decline? And how long, how long is it going to take? I'm looking at my kids out in California in the L.A. area um, in their late 20s, soon to be 30. They would really like to buy a home at some point. It, right now, it's not in the cards. But, but in the next couple of years, do you think it's a possibility?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to, this is going to take time. As you pointed out, people are reluctant to sell and give up that 3% mortgage and uh, it's going to take some time. So I say two, three year kind of process here. Uh, and it's going to vary a lot by where you are in the country. I mean, if you were in the parts of the country where they got really juiced up, you know, with all the remote workers coming in, you know, like, uh, Boise is the kind of the poster child, Idaho, you know, uh, you notice how I say Boise; it's not Boise. I learned from yes, the Maribou. Yes, Boise. You Boise. got <laughs> <laughs> she, she got quite annoyed <laughs> until I started saying Boise, Denver, you know, Phoenix, Atlanta, Tampa, Charlotte. You know, these are areas that got really juiced. Those are the areas where affordability now is getting taking it on the chin, and that's where you're going to see even more significant price declines. But again, put it into context. I mean. House prices rose forty percent the, between the, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020 to the peak in June of 2022. Forty percent nationwide, and they come in say ten, you're still up thirty. So you know, okay, you know, uh, some people are going to get the people who just bought in, you know, most in the first half of 2022. They're 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 not feeling so good, right? Because they their mm-hmm. price the price of them is now probably pretty close to the value of their mortgage. But for, but that's a small group. Even in Philly, you know, even I'm, I'm from Philly too. I, I've never seen anything like it. You know, if you believe Zillow, our know, right. home is actually you, worth something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pause you right there, Mark, for a quick break. We'll continue this when we get back. You are listening to Everyday Wealth. I'm Jean Chatsky, and I've been talking with Mark Zandi, Chief Economist for Moody's Analytics. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and... Help you protect and preserve it over the long term to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today call 833-PLAN-EFE that's 833-752-6333 or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com put your uncertainties to rest once and for all schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now I think we all agree that 2022 was tough—not when it came to just the economy and investing itself, but with our own personal economies as well. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. I am here with Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody's Analytics. Before the break, we were talking about where the housing market might be headed. How do you think that that remote work changing? Is is going to impact these patterns across the country? My daughter, who works in New York City, um, sent me a very a text message with an exclamation point yesterday that that her office had circulated a calendar that marked Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday as specifically in office and mm. and this was new for 2023 and 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 i imagine that there are a lot of places that are that are trying to put their foot down and say yes we want to see your face
2: yeah i, I think uh that's going to slow the
3: uh,
2: remote work dynamic i mean if you look at the we get really cool data on um from uh the based on credit files from equifax we can see addresses and uh, for individuals. Not, I don't know your address, but it's anonymized, but I can see address yeah. changes. So I can see, you know, real time where people are moving to and where they're moving from. And the peak of the outflow due to remote work was back in the summer of 2021. It had the out, net outflows from urban areas into rural areas and excerpts had doubled from pre-pandemic uh, rates. They've come back halfway from there since then, and they seem to be stabilizing. So there is some swinging back of the pendulum but in my view Gene there's no there's no going back here uh, i think remote work is here to stay it's a game changer and as technology improves and businesses figure this out and new businesses form right because new businesses aren't going to form around a office space they're going to form around you know a virtual setting you know the uh, this is going to have a big impact on the labor market and on the housing market you know uh, near term you know obviously it created a lot of juice in those areas i described earlier cuz and it really Weighed on uh, r- rents and prices, particularly rents in some of those large urban centers, you know, in the Northeast and on the West Coast, Chicago. But long run, interestingly enough, this could have some very positive, you know, dynam- dynamics. Remember, before the pandemic, we this—we we still had this affordable housing shortage. But the real right. question was, can we get workers figure out ways to produce housing in closer to the uh, center of urban cores where the jobs are, so that you know people can live where they work. Now maybe that's not going to be as big a deal, right? Because they can work from wherever uh, for you know whomever you know, and not just American companies but global companies. So, yeah, I think this is a, this is a very uh, these mo- single most important uh, change as a result, long term change as a result of the pandemic, and we're just now still now a long way from figuring out what the what those changes are going to be.
1: Is that bad for cities overall, or will the excess office space be converted into residential space for people who just want to be closer to the best restaurants?
2: Well, I say big cities got a problem. Uh, certainly, over the next few years, as they try to adjust to all this, I mean, you know, New York, Boston, New York, Philly, DC, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, LA. It, big problem. Uh, you know, those office towers are not easily converted into other uses. But let me just say this. Uh, uh, no, don't underestimate the creativity of a real estate developer. Those, those folks are pretty creative. And when you think, oh, what are they going to do with all those malls? Well, they figured it out. It took some time and it was painful for some people. They lost money. And there were some defaults on mortgages on those properties, but they figured it out, and I I suspect that's going to be the case here. I but I can't tell you exactly what that's going to be. Some of that office will turn into residential, like you know I, I live out in the suburbs of Philly in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and there's you know our office building at some point you know we're remote you know we're going to, we're, we're all remote we're we're not going to need that office space, but that office space easily can be adapted into, you know, uh, 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 condominiums or apartments. And that's what's going to happen for some of that space. But those big towers, you know, one world trade, I, I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what you do with that. Yeah. But they'll figure it out over time.
1: Uh with the aging of the population, I see a I see a lot of assisted living in 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 the future of, of some of these of some of these towers. Before I let you go, I, I just want to ask about your your feelings on on the investment picture, the markets for for 2023 and beyond. 2022 was ugly. It, you know, it was ugly for stocks, it was ugly for bonds, it was frustratingly ugly for both of them at the same time. What what are you thinking?
2: Well, uh, two pieces of advice. One, uh, don't pay any attention to any of the ups and downs. Just save and invest because you're invested. Effectively, if you're in the stock market, you're invested for the long run. You don't care about this year, that year. It goes up, it goes down, it goes all around. You'll be fine because you're betting on the American economy. and At the end of the day, that's a good bet. Second piece of advice, don't count on the kind of gains you've got as, you know, over the last 20, 25 years because in the last 20, 25 years, more or less, interest rates were headed south, and when interest rates are headed south, that juices up, you know, valuations, multiples in the equity market, the so-called price earnings multiples, the, they, because it's just a discounted cash flow. I won't go into it, but you you understand what I mean. But going forward, interest rates aren't going lower. They only have one way to go, maybe up, but maybe we're lucky and they you know they stay where they are. But I wouldn't count on that tailwind. So, you know, if I were thinking about this and i you know was invested in a bit in, in stock and in and, and bond and and have a little bit in cash and maybe in housing you know i count on like a and is going to go back to like the 2% world that we were in before i'd expect returns on average about 5-6% per annum that would be uh, a prudent planning don't count on 8 9 10% like you've been getting over the last 20 25 years that's not going to happen but 5 6 7 and you do those two things you'll be just fine
1: Mark Sandy from Moody's. Thank you so much for for yeah. this broad overview. i feel I feel surprisingly better now, um, but I always feel better after talking to you. That
2: was my goal, Jean. I'm glad I succeeded. Thank Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: This is a great time to remind everyone that all investing comes with risk, and there are no guarantees past performance is not indicative of future results. One of my favorite outcomes from the pandemic and remote work is that We get to sometimes see and hear from our pets on Zoom calls or even on the radio. Norman, my cockapoo, is sitting right beside me, and he perked right up when he heard Mark's dog say hello. I actually hope that never goes away. We are going to switch gears now just a bit, though. Joining me is John McCafferty. He is an Edelman Financial Engines wealth planner from Alexandria, Virginia. John, welcome. Great to see you again.
3: You as well, Jean. Thanks for having me.
1: Anytime. I wanted to follow up on a couple of those things that Mark talked about, but let's pull it from a economy with a big E perspective down into a personal economy perspective. Given the rise in interest rates, which we've been told will probably continue to go up and home prices still being up, inventory low, does this change the advice that you'd give to one of your clients looking to purchase a home?
3: Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, As Mark mentioned, the environment for new homeownership isn't very favorable right now. So if one is considering this as maybe a nice to do rather than a must do, Waiting might be a better course of action, but it does depend on one's circumstances.
1: And if you're waiting, how long do you think we're waiting?
3: Good question. So we want to keep an eye on interest rates. We want to keep an eye on inventory. But I think more than anything, it really, it boils down to, as you like to say, Gene, one's personal economy. I'm a big believer in making sure that your personal circumstances drive most, if not all of your financial decisions. So yes, um, interest rates may be challenging. Uh, Inventory may be challenging. We need to wait at least through this year to see how things play out. Um, But uh, in the end, your circumstances really should drive your, your choice, your decision. And how we help people facing such a decision is we really want to comb through the numbers, make sure that they put themselves in an advantageous position.
1: I feel like I grew up in a series of these must-do scenarios. We moved from town to town. My father, every five-ish years, got a new perch. Um, So we were in Wisconsin, then Indiana, then West Virginia, Mm -hmm. then Illinois. And every time we moved, my mother would go out with my dad and they would buy a home very quickly. So let's say this is one of those scenarios where you've got to move. Are there any interest rate hacks that you can point us to? Any different types of mortgages, like ARMS, that we should be looking at rather than the 30-year fixed-rate mortgages or 15-year fixed-rate mortgages that have been so attractive over the last decade?
3: Possibly. And there again, it does depend on the circumstances. I'd say the big driver behind should you consider an ARM or not is the length of time in which you think you're going to be living in that home. Um, So, more often than not, you're going to be looking at either a three-year arm or a five-year arm. We would default for the five-year arm if you were to choose an arm. Um, The reason being is you're locking in a rate for a little bit longer. If if our philosophy, if our advice, if there is any sort of default to all categories of our advice, it's this. We want you to have more control, and we want you to have more liquidity. So, in choosing a five-year arm, if you must, over the three-year arm it's buying you more time. You're locking in that rate for a little bit longer. Um, Ultimately, we do prefer to recommend the 30-year mortgage, but try to go longer with with whatever mortgage you're considering.
1: So before we move on here, let's just do a little bit of quick defining of what we're really talking about here. When we look at a 30-year fixed rate mortgage or a 15-year fixed rate mortgage, you are getting into a loan where you know that your rate is your rate for the entire term of that loan. And right, right now, a, a 30-year fixed, as we record this show, uh, second week of January is at about 6.5%. A 15-year is about 5.8, 5.9%. A five, one arm is at 5.5%. That's a big difference from the 30-year fixed. Talk about how these ARM products work.
3: So you are clearly with the, the 30 and the 15, you're you've bought yourself a lot of time there. You've got a long runway. With these ARM products, you are more subject to variance in rates. So um, as you're typically locked in for five years, as you're nearing the final year of your arm, you could be subject to a reset. Um, and the risk being it could be reset to a higher rate um, and put you into sort of a financial bind if rates go against you.
1: So when you look at a, a hybrid arm, that's what this category is called. If you're looking at a 3-1 arm, it's fixed for the first three years, five years fixed for the first five, seven fixed for the first seven, and 10 fixed for the first 10. And then you then you hit that adjustment. Is Is the goal here to try to time the Lockdown period—that five or three or seven or ten—with the amount of time that you believe you'll stay in that house.
3: Yeah, more or less. Um, if if we we prefer people, if you're looking to buy a home, envision yourself being in the home for at least seven years, ideally seven to ten years. Understandably, that might not align with what your goals are, where you see your how you see your life unfolding. So you're correct, Gene. That's what you want to do. Is if you think you're going to be in a place for three years. Uh, or five or seven, you want to try and and align the length of the loan with how long you think you will be in that home.
1: Do you think that the way interest rates are moving, there will be at some point during the next five-ish years an opportunity to refinance once again?
3: More than likely, um, I, what I will say, I've been doing this for about eighteen years to try and predict or guess what, what's going to happen with interest rates, and you know this as well, Gene, It's 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 really it's impossible, but a five-year time horizon is it's it's long enough to to say it's you're you're likely going to be looking at some change in rates. Um, so, regardless of the loan that you're considering, um, I would, in the back of your mind, uh, have a Refinance is part of your your longer term strategy,
1: and should you know at any point in time? I mean, I I just am thinking about the last decade, right? And mm-hmm. many people refinanced multiple times that that rule of thumb that we used to talk about that you needed a two percentage point difference in order to make a refi make sense pretty much went out the window and we saw a lot of people refinancing if they could save a point or even if they could save three quarters of a point. Should you always have in your mind the point at which it makes sense to refi and how do you do the math on that?
3: Well the math we, we can run that for you. you want to find a break even point um, if you're gonna what pay does that for- mean? So uh, you want to find if 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 you're sort of referencing, hey, should I pay for points, should I buy my rate down? We want to run the numbers to determine, okay, well, how long do you need to be in this home for you to for this sort of investment to pay off And right even basic- if you're
1: not buying points, even if you're not paying points, right? there's a cost to a refi. There's a closing cost.
3: Correct, right. And we'll run that calculation for you. And it's, it's the same thing where, okay, if if we're going to engage in this, ideally, if you're going to refinance, it should lower your payment. It should improve your circumstances because otherwise you don't do it. So that should be very evident uh, when you're looking at this. And then from that point or from, from there, you then want to determine, okay, well, how long do I need to uh, stay in this home for this, the cost to pay off? Um, When I work with my clients, I like to see a break even in basically three years or less. Um, it, that's not some, you know, hard, fast rule that everyone needs to follow. I just, I'm a big believer in making decisions that allow people to have more control so that don't you, you don't feel like you're, you're locked into this home. You're locked into this loan if your life changes. So, um, yeah, it's about yeah, setting Yeah, no, I agree
1: with you. I think control is, is, is what it's all about. And so what I'm hearing you say about these break even points is you're taking the cost of the transaction, how much. It's going to, how much you're going to have to come out of pocket to close on this refi. And you're dividing by the amount that you'd save every month mm-hmm. on this new lower monthly payment. And if it's, if you see a 36, right, that you're in the house for three years and it it makes sense at that point, then that's when you would pull the trigger.
3: Right, exactly. And and uh, whether it's a refinance or whether you're considering, hey, should I buy a home? Should I rent? Um, you always want to run the numbers. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but it's it's really, a, it's the most important thing you can do. You want to know what you're getting into and how it might impact your finances over the next three, five, seven, eight, ten 10 years.
1: Well, what about renting? I mean, you mentioned there will be some people who have to move right, in today's environment, like mm-hmm. my family did so often, mm-hmm. um, could it make more sense to rent? I, I know I know that rents are very high in some parts of the country.
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Gene. And um, I work in the Washington, D.C. area. It tends to be a little bit more transient than, than your typical market in, in our country. So I've walked a lot of people through this exact scenario. And in my experience, I believe that if If you're moving, unless you're absolutely certain of the market you're moving into, you know the areas, in most cases, it's smarter to rent. I'm a big believer in renting from anywhere to one to three years. Um, I know generally what comes up is, well, that means I have to move again. I'm not very comfortable with that. But it's financially, it's often a wise choice. So I'm a big believer in if you're moving, consider renting for one to three years. When I've run numbers for clients, I mean, most loans, you're paying interest for the first three years anyway. And so rather than giving up your liquidity and giving up your control and sort of maybe feeling like you're rushed into buying a home, maybe keep your money on the side, rent for one to three years and, and ease into the transaction. I'm not, a particularly with real estate, Uh, I don't like to see people rushed. You shouldn't feel like you have to do anything. And when you have more liquidity um, and when you are renting, you, you, you have more control. You have more flexibility. And in periods of uncertainty, which I would say we are in, that's a huge advantage.
1: For those people entering retirement, I know we've talked enough before for me to know that you tend to favor keeping your mortgage in Mm -hmm. retirement. And with rates at 3%, 3 3.5%, I got that, right? I I understood, okay, you could put your money to work in the market. You could beat the return that you're getting by paying off your mortgage. But with a 30-year mortgage now closing in on 7%, does that change that approach?
3: It might. Uh, ultimately, what you want to do is you do want to run the numbers, and now with the standard deduction being as high as it is, the, the tax benefit to keeping a mortgage in retirement might not be there. So you really want to look at your personal economy, you want to explore your personal circumstances. And there again, I, I'm a big believer, Our firm is a big believer in liquidity, and it mm-hmm. just it all goes back to liquidity, it all goes back to control. So here's what I would say is, if, if you have a, a small balance Mortgage, let's say it's a hundred thousand or less, maybe that could be worthwhile to pay off your mortgage. And and what I do is I run the numbers. I look at, hey, here's your monthly payment. This let's just use a hundred thousand. All right, what if you use this hundred thousand to pay off your mortgage? How much would that increase your cash flow? That's sort of a a, a different way of of achieving yield uh, month over month versus. What if we took that hundred thousand and invested it either into a bond portfolio, a stock portfolio, ideally, something that contains all of the above? And what will be the better use of money for you? so if if hundred thousand dollars is forty percent of your liquid net worth, you probably want to hold on to it. If it's ten percent of your liquid net worth, that opens up the door a little bit more or opens up the conversation to possibly paying off your mortgage. But, If I have a default answer, it would be keep the mortgage and keep your money.
1: It's why it's so important to sit down and actually model out the scenarios, not just for this year, but for the next decade or the next couple of decades, because retirement can last such a long time.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) We are out of time, John. Thank you so much. If you've got a question or a topic that you'd like to discuss with us, we would love to talk to you on the air. Just visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. Together with an EFE wealth planner like John, we will talk through potential solutions that would be personal to you. And if you missed an episode, be sure to check out our past podcasts. And just a note on that, starting mid-February, Everyday Wealth will be transitioning to a podcast-only format. will no longer be a weekly radio show. But while our format may change, our mission... Has not. We are dedicated to helping people grow and protect their wealth. We'll continue to sit at the intersection of life and money and focus on the moments that matter for your personal economy. We'll also continue to invite experts and authors to the conversation for fresh perspectives and answer your questions because, as we've been saying, first and foremost, finance is very personal. So be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. If you're new to podcasting, just visit everydaywealth.com. All of our episodes are available there as well. Have a great week, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines' Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.